He looks down the barrel of his Winchester 1892 and takes aim. The strange flying bird, larger than a church in town, started to turn around, almost as if it had spotted him. It must have invisible wings because he can't see them at this distance. But the sound it makes, oh, the sound is louder than a speeding train. It closes in and he puts the finger on the trigger. When it's within range, he takes the shot. You could have sworn that it made a metallic sound on impact, but the bird cancels the charge. It goes straight up and is out of sight within a few seconds. Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host Frederick and this is episode 22. This time we're back in the Old West to close up episode 1 out of season 3 called Aliens and the Old West. We started this episode last time and this is therefore part 2. But you can follow along even if you haven't heard the first episode. Even if you definitely should go back and listen to it either now or after this episode. This time though we will deal with Mormon history that according to the show contains more aliens than you thought. We will also discuss the above people from the Blackfoot tradition, Thunderbirds and poetry. So we have quite the episode for you. Remember before going into all of this, that you can find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Enough of me jammering, let's travel back in time and see if you really should slam the door on those Mormons. Okay, so the show then decides that maybe we haven't talked enough about um, problematic people and racist notions. The narrator does not have to say more than Palmyra, New York to send a cold shot down my spine. Some of you might have an idea what will come up now, but we're going back to September 21st, 1823. This is because the show will claim that this is the date when Joseph Smith, founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, as I will refer to them after this, or LDS, as they prefer to be called, but hey. But he met the angel Moroni. That sounds kind of... Dum, 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 dum. The show also briefly shows the golden plates and a fun fact that if the slabs were real existed, they would have weighed something about 100 kilo each or 200 pounds for the Americans. So then just picture Joseph Smith carrying these super heavy plates back to his cabin. The story of Joseph Smith is a weird blend of silly, stupid, racist and dangerous. Since we have encountered the Mormons in the past, maybe we should look into them a little bit deeper. Due to the strange connection between the LDS church and ancient aliens. 
something worth remembering is that the history of the Mormon church is a strange tale filled with war, blood and magical underwear. The church in 1800 was far from today's friendly and clean living church that is worth um, $100 billion currently. And they have done an excellent job in trying to erase the history that puts them in a bad light. If they have not been able to remove it, you will know that they have downplayed much of it. So finding neutral information can be quite challenging. Take Wikipedia for example. The pages about the LDS church are like a battleground between the church-friendly editors and, well, other parties. (laughs) As usual, I try to find as neutral sources as possible. And the websites and books used are listed in the show notes as usual. But how about we start from the beginning? Let's sit down and hear about the origin of this belief. Joseph Smith is an exciting and um, problematic character that quickly could fill several episodes. If you are after just that, I would recommend the Naked Mormonism podcast hosted by Bryce Blankenagel. But little Joe was born on December 23, 1805. He spent much of his formative years during the Second Great Awakening. This is a time in the US when religions realized that they well, needed to compete for customers. But this is a time of religious fever that would give Smith some ideas for later in life. But Joseph was a known huckster, cheater and smooth talker in his youth. And this would not really change much, but he added a profit later on. This is not just me making things up. Smith had, um, had many run-ins with the law, some minor offenses, but before his death he had advanced to treason and conspiracy to murder a governor of Illinois, just to name a few of his criminal records. In his earlier years, Smith made his fortune, or what we should call it, by going door-to-door, claiming that there were treasure on the property. The story he told the owners that with the help of magical seerstone, he had, he had gained the location of the hidden wealth. You might be excused if you thought that Smith walked around, dug holes until the property owner got tired. But it was not even Smith who did the digging. No, that was the owner's res- responsibility. Smith mainly sat on the side trying to ensure that the diggers followed God's rules, because if they did Anything that angered God, the treasure was moved to a new location and they needed to start all over. So all he did was lazily supervising a few men. If they questioned this, God became angry and look at that, you need to start over. And out of this, Smith got a place to sleep, some food and well, access to the daughters on the farm. I think we, I think you can use your fantasy to picture what happens thereafter. But the seer stone would make a return with the plates. This is because the angel Moroni, I mean, really, revealed the location of the tablets to Smith. Maybe it was a, I told you I could find treasure. Perhaps it was laziness, but um, Smith could translate his magical tablets with the seer stone. But no one was allowed to see the plates, of course. Trey Parker and Matt Stone described this whole thing quite well in the South Park episode all about the Mormons. Oh my gosh! 
I am Moroni. I am a Native American. A Native American? But your skin is white. Yes, long ago all Native Americans were white. We all came to America from Jerusalem. And while we were here, we were visited by Christ. And even if the Book of Mormon is mostly known, there are two others that's canonized without books as canonized in the religion. One is uh, Doctrine and Covenants, and the other is Pearl of Great Price. Even if the LDS Church today is a large organization accepted by mainstream society, it, it did not start out like that. They had a couple of things against them. First was actually religious bigotry. Even if you slap the Jesus sticker on your new faith, it would be hard to gain acceptance even in 1830. And even if the second great awakening had occurred, people were still quite skeptical about the millennialism sect which early Mormonism was part of. Millennialism is not a movement for 30-somethings who is bragging about the time they actually used a Walkman. No, this is a belief that paradise would be on earth, not on heaven. Or, well, that's the simple version of it at least. The second thing working against the Mormons was that Smith didn't stop being a con artist just because he started to work for Jesus. His criminal records grew even while leading the church and um, he was mainly found on of uh, committing banking frauds. But he was not afraid of plotting murders on officials, plotting some treason, inciting riots, you know, all the good stuff. And even starting some, some of the Mormon wars. And the third thing creating some frictions for the Mormons was when Smith realized that people actually believed him. He started then to have way more revelation and suddenly he could sleep with everybody's daughters, of course. He also added the idea of the Gentiles and how they were inferior to the Mormons. So as you hear, they did a few things that, for quite apparent reason, might create frictions with the neighbors. Now, the church will talk themselves silly about that first part, about religious bigotry, but they are very evasive about the other two, almost like they're trying to suppress this information. Joseph Smith also believed that Zion would be a place in the U.S. In 1930, Smith had a revelation that said the second coming of Jesus Christ would take part in Independence, Missouri. And it's a town most notable for being a pit stop for Lewis and Clark on the travels and the now quite infamous Donner Party. At first, the Mormons arrived to the city was quite peaceful, but tension grew due to the reasons we brought up earlier. And they got expelled in 1833, but stayed in the area. And this culminated in the First Mormon War in 1838. Smith learned from his mistake and in 1844 gave Zion a more fluent location. He summarized it like this. The whole of America is Zion itself from north to south and is described by the prophets who declared that it is the Zion where the mountain of the Lord should be 
and it should be in the center of the land. And without a fixed point, the church could leave independence behind to find a new Zion again. After being hounded out of independence, Smith found a new town at the eastern border of Illinois called Venus. Before that, um, Quashkima, which had begun as a settlement of indigenous Americans. Due to the church number, they could take over the town and... Uh, through democratic means, seized political offices in 1839. Smith was obviously elected mayor. That's a bit like how the Mormons operated. They gave out their uh, political titles associated with their religious um, ranking, so to say. And he also changed the name of the time to Nauvoo. So Nauvoo comes from the Hebrew word Nauvoo meaning beautiful, and this is a reference to Isaiah 52.7, so Smith could say that this was part of the new Zion. The downfall and death of Smith started with a newspaper called Nauvoo Expositor. When you know that this paper leads to Smith's end, you might expect a Guardian-level operation, but in fact, it only published one issue on June 7, 1844, Nouveau Expositor was created by former church members and contained criticism of Smith's doctrines. Smith did not like this and decided to go on the offense. So the publicist was ordered to be arrested and a trial was held between the 8th and 10th of June. They're working right quite quickly here. The paper was deemed a public nuisance and ordered annihilated. A posse of some hundred people burned the building to the ground. One publicist named Francis M. Higby sent out a letter trying to get help from the state. The news about the newspaper's destiny spread and the papers published the statement across the state. Fearing a rebellion, Smith declared martial law on June 18th and called in the local militia of some 5,000 men. Fearing civil war, Governor Ford ordered Smith arrested and rounded out a posse. Smith fled to Iowa but would later surrender on June 25. And Smith died on June 27, 1844. But the circumstances are a bit foggy. The official church position is that a mob fueled by religious bigotry stormed in and slew Joseph Smith. He was shot in the back and tumbled out a window trying to escape. But the other side is that we have the successor Brigham Young staging the event with a portion of the Mormon army to get rid of Smith. We might never learn the true answer, but uh, we know that Young would take on the role as the new charismatic leader of the faith. Under this new regime, the Mormons would continue the pursuit of their Zion and later find it in Utah. We will look into what happened there a bit later. Young did institute after this an oath of vengeance as a part of the endowment into the church. This oath to take revenge on the US was not removed until 1930. 
And um, for the annals, I just want to say that this was in nowhere a thorough retelling of Smith and LDS history. It is longer and even more ludicrous that I've managed to cover here. But let's return to our TV show. That's why we here. <laughs> so they've mentioned that Smith got the plates from the angel Moroni. And since angels comes from heaven, Smith must have been talking to an alien. We then have Logan Hawk who says... Moroni claimed to be from the Pleiades star cluster. So a church today, nine million members strong, believe that their church may have originated not of this world, but of another world. The issue here is that Hawk is blending two cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. The JV squad does have an idea that God is located within the Pleiades. This was due to an early widespread notion during the 1800s that the Pleiades was the center of the universe. And for the angel Moroni, well, that name was not used for the angel who visited Smith, or not until at least 1835, in preparation for Doctrine and Covenants. Smith named the angel Moroni, who would be the spiritual version of the prophet Moroni. And Moroni was the last person in the Book of Mormon to inscribe the golden tablets. And he was a human on earth, to be precise. Or the spirit of a human that lived on earth, at least. But the name was later changed by Smith to Nephi, the first translator of the tablets but the church later considered that must have been a mistake and changed the name back to Moroni again after Smith's death and if we look into the Mormon doctrines we find the book of Abraham which in which Smith asserted that there was a star or planet this is the 1800 so star can be a planet and vice versa and uh, the, the name of this star planet was named Kolob. Kolob was presumed to be near the throne of God and a representation of the first creation. So Logan Hawk seems to cherry pick the things he like and then just smash them together and hoping that nobody would notice. But this is not really new to us studying ancient aliens. They then say that the tablet was found in Comora Hill. But this is important to note that the Comora Hill is not a mound or a manufactured structure. The hill's name is an invention of Smith and was quite unimportant to the local population before this. But Coppen comes in with this quite interesting quote. We have since found out that in burial mounds and other refugee mounds across the Native American region, we have such plates. These writing tablets have been found, and not just in North America, but also in South America. This entity tells Joseph Smith to go on a physical search for an object, which we know could have been an archaeological finding. And the narrator then continues with... According to ancient astronaut theorists, 
Moroni may, in fact, have been a star being, an extraterrestrial whose mission was to pass down to Smith and his followers the advanced knowledge of the mound builders. So Smith probably found the tab that's in the hill or mound as he calls it, so he can hint at a myth about the mound builders. As settlers moved west, they started to encounter mounds and earthwork that we attribute to the Adena culture today at least. But to the 19th century mind, the mounds were way too advanced to have been built by the indigenous people living there today, or then too. And the idea about the mound builders had started to appear that it was an evolved race that had been lost to time. And there were several different um, hypotheses circulated on who the builders were. Maybe it was Egyptians or an enclave of Welsh people, a settlement of Norwegians, or perhaps it was a lost tribe of Israel. Basically any other than the Native Americans who were had been living in these lands for generations. For example, J.V. Foster, the president of Chicago Academy of Science, reasoned that Native Americans, and I'm going to quote here, was never known to engage in an enterprise requiring methodical labor. He dwells in temporary and movable habitation. To suppose that such a race threw up the strong lines of circumvallation and the symmetrical mounds, which crowns many of our river terraces, is preposterous, almost, as to suppose they have built the pyramids of Egypt. Note that this quote is from 1887, from one of the leading scientists of the time. As we said with Serpent Mound in the last episode, the science of the day was not above just using racist ideas. There were more claims to support the myth about the mound builders, or supposedly there were. Another was that there were finds of metal objects in the mounds. And it is correct that the indigenous people of North America never got far in metallurgy. So the presence of metallic artifacts within the mounds was, to the scholars of the time, evidence that there must have been someone else there. But when these objects were re-examined, the metal objects were of native copper. And copper is one of those metals that you can find raw in nature and still use. This is why most metalworking cultures have started with just copper. You can almost call it a gateway metal. The pure copper is easily worked. It's just a bonus, basically. We have some beautiful artifacts preserved to our days from the Native Americans. It's not that they found some stainless steel or Oneida silverware in the mounds, really. Another argument that was supposedly in favor of the mound builders being a, no, a more advanced race was, um, was these tablets with alphabetic letters that were supposedly discovered in the mounds. Some were pure misinterpretation of archaeological find. And some was just pure hoaxes. 
the earliest is probably the Grave Creek tablet found in 1838. And the signs have been attributed to the Greek, the Norse and the Phoenicians. But um, no one has been able to determine if the author tried to relay a message or just scribbled some random signs on it. And there's this cute little birdie on it. We can also count <laughs> Smith tablets among these hoaxes, so to say, even if we, or well, mainly due to we have not seen any evidence of them existing. But that's a different issue. But <laughs> we have also the keystone. A small arrow or cheese slicer form stones inscribed with Hebrew letters reading the laws of Jehovah, the word of the Lord, the holy of holies and the king of the earth. Another stone called Decalogue with the Ten Commandments was also found written in Hebrew but strangely in a different accent. If they now were lost, a lost tribe of Israel, it's hard to believe that they would use two versions of the Hebrew language dated to varying time within Israel. What makes it even stranger is that some grammatical parts indicate that they were written in 1800s. So I wonder if they are ancient Israelites or not. <laughs> so both of these can reasonably be called frauds. Furthermore, we have the Davenport tablet found while excavating mounds in, well, Davenport in Iowa. These are crude forgeries with something that's supposed to resemble language and maybe planetary movement. But since they used tiles from the local house to produce this fraud, we can be quite confident to say that these are quite bad forgeries even if they're food one or two in the beginning, and probably still do, to be honest. Some tabs have been found in Native American mounds. That's not forgeries or hoaxes. They are commonly known as the Adena tablets, and uh, there are several of them found in mounds then, especially. The problem for us is that only two have been found in situ by archaeologists and the rest were found by treasure hunters. Looking at the patterns, designs and uh, where these tablets were located, archaeologists are pretty sure that these tablets are associated with the Adena culture. They are quite modest in size, you would be able to hold one in your hand. And most importantly, maybe here, this place was not meant to be read. When they was analyzed, it's become evident that they were meant to be utilized as stamps. Within the tablets, grows are traces of red okra, animal fat, water, and in some cases, urine. These components together would have made a relatively efficient color for printing. We have also, we have as a species tried to decorate our belongings for a very long time and try to make herself look more stunning. So I think this is a reasonable explanation. It could, of course, also be that they, these tablets served another purpose and was just painted. But um, yeah, it's not tablets of mythi mythical writing, at least as far as we know today. 
Anyway, the most considerable effort to disprove the mound builder myth early was made by Cyril Thomas in 1882, armed with $5,000, a quite substantial sum for this time and period. He went through the evidence of went through all the evidence so wonderfully academically. This resulted in a 700-page report in 1894 called Report on the Mound Exploration of the Bureau of Ethnology, where he laid out the things we just discussed, basically. Even if most of us have come a long way since early 19th century archaeology, this idea remains, as we see in the show, I do not know if Coppens meant the tablets with or without letters or if he... But it's clear that he was talking about the mound builder. And our friend Graham Hancock did revisit the myth in a sort of new form with Atlantis mixed into it as late as 2019. And the book is called America Before, The Key to the Earth Lost Civilization, as you would assume with... Hancock. But if I were you, I would stay away from it. If you want to explore more on this subject, I would instead turn to Jason Colavito's book, The Mound Builder Myth, Fake History and the Hunt for a Lost White Race. You find a deep excavation of the Mound Builder Myth there and I highly recommend the book. But what do the Mound Builders have to do with Joseph Smith? As we mentioned earlier, part of this myth is told about lost tribes of Israel coming to America, building these mounds. And this idea also appears in Joseph Smith's writings and in the Book of Mormon. Smith do talk about how white Israelis who believed in Jesus traveled across the sea to the New World. They were called Nephites. But some of them turned wicked and rebellious. These evil uh, people call themselves Lamanites, and their wrongful living turned their skin dark. Smith wrote in the second Nephi, fifth chapter, and he had caused the cursing to come upon them, ye, even a sore cursing, because of their inquiety, for behold, they had hardened their hearts against him, that they had become like unto a flint. Wherefore, as they were white, and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people the Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. Similar to the ham story, the difference is that the Lamanites did not see their drunkest father naked, uh, Ham's skin does not really turn black in the story, but this passage was often used in colonial period to justify slavery. Though this passage was probably uh, inspiration for Smith, the Mormons did believe that their whiteness was a divine sign of them being the chosen people. Their whiteness was was what set them apart from the darker and tainted people. It was even a foundation for priesthood within the church. In 1844, Brigham Young clarified that being of Abraham's pure, unmixed seed was essential to be considered for the priesthood. 
with the seed of Abraham, Brigham Young meant that you were white, of course. Young would continue to use Ham's passage to justify the cursed people can't hold priesthood by cursed. He meant, of course, black. He cleared this in a speech in 1852, cementing the church view on the matter for quite some time. I'm going to quote here again. Lord told Cain that he should not receive the priesthood nor his seed until the last of the posterity of Abel had received the priesthood until the redemption of the earth. If there was a prophet or apostle of Jesus Christ spoke before, I tell you, these people that are commonly called the Negroes are the children of old Cain. I know they are. I know they cannot bear rule in the priesthood for the curse on them until the residue of the posterity of a Michael and his wife receiving blessings the seed of Cain have received and they have not been cursed. And this idea was in effect until the 1970s and the passage about the amenities in later it, the, the passage about the Lamanites was actually changed in some later editions. But due to the Lamanite connection, the indigenous people had a paradoxical relation to the early Mormons. They were doomed to be looked at as inferior, but according to the Book of Mormon prophecies, they had the capabilities to actually become superior. They were actually direct descendants of the Nephite. Yes, curse, but curses can be broken. The Mormon church believed that Native American, if properly converted, could become white again. And this idea led to Mormons taking in children from Native American family, not all voluntary to be servants. Later, in the just previous century, it was changed and they were instead to give proper education, as they call it. All of it to make white people out of them. And this education program was active until the 70s or 1980s, somewhere there in some areas. And we explored the history of appropriation of the Native American culture in the last episode. And the LDS has not been innocent of this either. For example, in early meetings, they had often talked in tongues imitating a made-up version of Native American language. And they are described to have chanted and danced just like the Indians. These are just a few examples on how the Mormons under Smith and later church leader incorporated a real and fictional Native American elements into their teachings. Now when we have a little bit better understanding on the foundation of the LDS church, we will Move on to the Mormons' entry into Utah. Joseph Smith felt such a strong connection to the Native Americans that he believed they could help guide him to a new holy land, which he called the New Zion. Although Smith died in 1844, the victim of mob violence, his successor, Brigham Young, ultimately led the Mormons further west to Utah. In 1849, when the Mormons arrived in the area of Parowan Gap, local Ute leader Chief Wakara told them they had entered God's own house and showed them proof in the form of petroglyphs dating back thousands of years. 
we have covered Smith's idea about the new Zion already, and Yutha was a logical place since it was not being part of the US yet. Yuta would become a territory in 1850, but it would not be a state until 1896. The Mormons settled early in 1849 with a very skeptical approval of the local leaders from Native American tribes. And these Native Americans did call themselves the Nietzsche or the peoples. And then they divided themselves into smaller bands such as fish eaters or the lake people. But identity within especially the Native American culture in this era was more fleeting. And a family cluster could change bands or tribes over the time. It was not as in Europe where you identify with your place of birth until you die basically. But allowing the Mormons to settle was a form of protection against the U.S. attempts to get the indigenous people off the lands. But relation did turn sour rather quickly. Just during 1849, remember they arrived at this year, the Mormons committed two massacres, killing some hundred Native Americans. From this point, the relationship between different bands and the Mormons was fleetly, was fleeting and mostly forged out of necessity. And Chief Vakara, that they mentioned here in the little clipping, did take advantage of this. And he was quite the character. And he tried to use the Mormons to his advantage as much as he could. And the fact that he... Um, took advantage of white people, gave him a number of names among the Anglo-American settlers, such as Napoleon of the Desert or Indian Land Pirate, showing their admiration and contempt at the same time with their nicknames. Vaccaro did usually have some, maybe up to 150 people in his band, but these individuals changed over time. What set Vakara apart was his approach to nomads and horses, while the other people in Utah was a sedimentary. Vakara was always in motion. If he saw an opportunity that would get him ahead, he took it. And this made him neither friend nor foe to the Mormons. And Vakara seems to have been a quite complicated person. This did not fit well within the white Mormon ideal of the indigenous people. And after Vakara's death, they rewrote him as a more simplistic character. Since the Native American was supposed, in their view, be aggressive, they even made up stories about Vakara. For example, one case in 1950, they claimed that he tried to attack Fort Provo but he was betrayed by another Native American and instead of attacking he and his tribe just went around howling in the night trying to scare the settlers. The Mormons even staged reenactment of Indian attacks during festivities where they dressed up as Native Americans and pretended to attack the celebration. This would later be picked up by Buffalo Bill and his shows. And the dressing up as Native American was not limited, limited to only pretend attacks. 
It was also used in the Mountain Meadow Massacre, where they dressed up and attacked the Banker Fisher Wagon Trail heading for California. They killed some 140 people, but spared children young enough to not remember the, those events. And the surviving children was then donated to local families to be raised as Mormon. As for the petroglyph, the quote can be traced to an expedition led by the LDS member Parley P. Pratt, since Vaccara had directed them to the site of Paravan Gap, petroglyphs, it could be well argued that he tried to elucidate that this was a holy site in a way that these settlers or explorers would be able to comprehend. While Christians see the place of God as a building, many other religions tend to have the gods just around them. I'm not sure why they focus on in on this quote. It seems as if someone is just trying to describe their culture to an outsider in a way that they would be able to comprehend. Sukulas then starts to talk about the petroglyphs and the show presents a sample. Some of them are from the area, Paravang Gap, and others are from, well, flashing by from unknown places. But the show seems to want us to believe that they're all from... This site, Paravan Gap, will bring up this sense any strings petroglyph to Sukulos mean that this must be an alien. As we have mentioned, they, they see what they want to see in these cases. But we use these petroglyph to launch ourselves into the next section. Star beings, ancestors, people or children. These beings come with a, with a numerous of name and in diverse form. We have encountered them before and we will try to explore them a little bit more in this section. Now the show wants us to connect the star people with the Mormon angel Moroni and the Lumelay UFO crash described by the Weird Wild West author Josh Whalen as follows. In 1865, the Missouri Democrat reported that a trapper um, saw a light traveling through the sky at night. Flew over his camp, broke apart, and crashed in the forest some miles away. The next day, he tracked it down, found a large stone embedded inside of a mountain. It was hollow, it was cracked open. He claimed there were chambers inside of it and there were hieroglyphic markings on it. And there was also some mysterious liquid spilled around the area. But the newspaper, you know, went so far as to suggest that these were meteoric conveyances of aliens from Mercury or Uranus. So the whole idea of UFO crashes was explored in the 19th century, almost 100 years before Roswell. Complete with Egyptian hieroglyphs, it sounds like an invention of its time. I've not been able to find the original myself, but um, we must remember that newspapers of the day had a quite a different ap- approach to than many of our time. Even today we struggle with misinformation and, well, we explored in the last episode this in the Aurora crash. Uh, not They were not above printing internal jokes as news. 
But with this story, we uh, we get a brief presentation about the sky beings by Andrew Collins. And he tells us that the Blackfoot tribe has a tradition where beings came down from the sky in sky vehicles, as he called them. Nowhere in the literature I could find reference to vehicles, but we have to remember that myth can evolve over time. So giving the benefit of a doubt, Mr. Collins might have heard a newer version where wagons had been incorporated in the narrative, so to say. But it is true that among the Blackfoot people and other tribes, there is an idea about about the above people or sky beings, as they usually refer to as in the show. The main characters we might encounter are the sun, the moon, the morning star and the star boy. In the story of the star boy, he and his mother are thrown down from the sky sky world due to the mother's disobedience. The boy, named Poya, is marked with a terrible scar and can't marry. So Poya embarks on a long journey to meet the sun and get his forgiveness. The son does forgive Poya and returns him to earth where the scar is gone and he is now bestowed with the sacred knowledge of the sun dance. So the above people or sky beings have a place among Native American cultures but to call them aliens is to reduce a complex and living culture. Um, not that this has stopped ancient alien crowd before. We know they do this with all religions to some extent, but with the beliefs of the Native Americans, they have taken a more narrative freedom that maybe we shouldn't be comfortable with. We then meet Standing Elk from the Yankton Dakota tribe, part of the Sioux people. The Dakota people share some ideas with the Blackfoot, such as sun dancers and star men. Tikasav was a Yankton Dakota woman known for her writings, musical talents and political activism. And she wrote a few of these stories from the Dakota tribe in her book Old Indian Legends in 1901. Tikalsa is quite a character. She wrote an opera and uh, worked hard and championed Native American rights. I would happily talk more about her, but... Um, I don't think we have really the time and scope in this essay, uh, but I will link some of her work in the show notes. But why Standing Elk or Laureen Zephyr, who was a chief among the Yankton Dakota tribe and a Sundance chief, was not the one retelling the story about the sky being is to me a little bit odd. However, Standing Elk appears on the show to talk about how he was visited by extraterrestrial beings. And he did write about all of this in his book, Maka Vichatki Vikoan, Universal and Spiritual Laws of Creation. And he is a frequent flyer among the UFO and New Age people. But this was basically everything we got on the above people quite disappointing to be honest most of it is, is focused on the white experience rather than having a native american perspective on it we we're not done yet and we will see more about that in just a moment so we are 
heading to Tombstone, Arizona. And the narrative starts to talk about Wyatt Earp and uh, OK Corral. But we're not going to talk about them. Why bring up Wyatt Earp and OK Corral if you won't use them? Uh, Anyhow, the show talks about two cowboys who saw a giant creature in the sky looking like an alligator with wings uh, made out of a membrane. We then hear how the story has grown into a different version, changing until the creature is basically bulletproof. And the show is alluding to an article in the Tombstone Epitaph published on April 26th, 1890. In this article, the cowboys are two ranchers returning home. They spot the creature who seems exhausted on the ground at first. When they get closer, it flies up and away a little bit, but returns to earth. After a few more flights, the creature turns against the ranchers, who easily stay out of its way and shoot at it. After a few shots, the beast is unmovable on the ground. And the creature was 92 feet or 28 meter long, and the head was... 8 feet or 2.5 meter with giant teeth. The wingspan was a whopping 192 feet, 58 meters, but it only had two tiny little paws, according to the news article. And as you hear, the news article differs a little bit from what they tell in the story. For example, they shot the creature and it died. And um, if you look into the story, you will note that it's only this one article published about it, or at least what we can find, well, in the archives available to us currently. But it has evolved over the year, and some claims that it actually was an article from 1886 and a second creature in 1819s. And some photos of this uh, supposed creature is also circulating, but... All of those are known hoaxes. But the show's idea that this is some sort of spacecraft is um, quite wrong. It's clearly a flying monster of sort that they talk about. And Circulus then starts to go on on more fabulous creatures like the Tommyknockers or the Ghost Riders or Ghost Trains and he wonders if all of those are just campfire stories invented on the spot or built on actual events. I'm not sure what method Thukalos used to difference between fiction and non-fiction but I think he might need an update soon. But from his writing and speaking on the show it feels as it basically comes down to if it benefits me, well, the legend must be real. From this, we go to transcendentalism, science fiction, and poetry. Michael J. Crow gave us this quote. Transcendentalism was perhaps the leading philosophy developed in America in the 19th century. One of the founding figures in it was Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was belief in extraterrestrial life that led him to depart from Christianity. And another author who was part of that is the poet Walt Whitman. His most famous book, 1855, is The Leaves of Grass. And in The Leaves of Grass, there are like 200 references to astronomy. 
he believed strongly in extraterrestrials. Transcendentalism was popular in American since it's a highly American philosophy. It's it talks about the natural goodness in people. That doesn't maybe sound too America, but also how society and government have corrupted them and that people can only be their best if they are self-reliant. There we go, bootstraps. But Walt Whitman was not a pure transcendentalist. No, he incorporated part of it in his poetry, but we will find a lot of realism in there too. He moved between these two movements during his life and writings. And as for the poetry collection they mentioned, I found two references to astronomy in there. If you count things like the sun, moon, stars, skies, and something that you find above your head, sure, you might end up at 200. But I'm not sure where Crow get the idea that he is an ET believer. I don't really get the ET vibes from the collections. I think they they would need to point out some more specific poems, to be honest here. Whitman was known to speak his mind, and I can't find that he conveyed anything about beings from space or things like that. To get the feeling that what Whitman wrote, I have a poem, you will find it after the outro, um, that I will read for you, and it's called Going Somewhere. You will also find it in the show notes. But uh, from poetry we move uh, towards early science fiction. You might, when hearing this, have several American authors pop up. But you are all wrong, except if one of you thought, well, that must be Ambrose Bierce. Well, that would be correct. Ambrose was born in 1842. He was a Civil War veteran of the Union Army, writer and a journalist. He may be most known for his book The Devil's Dictionary, which could be described as an early urban dictionary. The book contains some hundred words with satirical definition and is uh, by many thought as one of the American masterpieces. Beers was considered one of the most influential journalists in the USA and worked until his end, basically. If you might have read a story by him, it's most likely an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, written as a stream of consciousness with a famous twist ending that I I won't give it away. It's an old story, but if you haven't read it, go and check it out. Even as the beers dabbled in early sci-fi, it's not really what he's most famous for, nor is his story difficult of crossing a field, first published in San Francisco Examiner, on October 14th, 1888. So according to the story, this uh, or to the show, this story, The Difficult of Crossing a Field, is about a man who is abducted, strangely, from a field. He suddenly disappears from it. And um, Logan Hawke gives um, some explanation here, but he adds a lot of things that basically aren't in the original. For example, he claims that the wife can hear the husband's voice from a circle that was left in the field. But uh, this is Hawk's own addition. Now I'm not against um, 
that fictional story expands and might be rewritten by the narrator over time. But um, you can't add things to a fictional story and then say that the story with the addition is the true events. But we see that quite often in ancient alien theorists. And uh, if you're interested in hearing the story, it will be linked in the show notes again. And there will drop a bit later a bonus episode where we will read this little short story. We do not actually know precisely how Ambrose died, but the show has a few ideas. Childress suspect that the journalist maybe got himself into a mystical portal. At the very early part of 20th century, Ambrose Bierce was in northern Mexico. In this area that's known for strange phenomenon called Aquime. This area too is thought to be another one of these interdimensional portal areas. Logan Hawk thinks that maybe Bierce met up with F.A. Mitchell Hedges. Yes, that Mitchell Hedges from the famous Crystal Skull Hedges. The idea is that they met up in Pakime to go to the largest crystal cave in the world to communicate with the skull. They figure out the language and uh, that way unlocked an interdimensional portal that brought bears to the extraterrestrial beings. Well, the then 71-year-old bears was indeed in Chihuahua City in 1913. This creates a few problems for the Mitchell-Hedges connection since according to the Hedges themselves they found it in 1924 in Belize and the Crystal Cave Hawks mansion had a small part that was discovered in 1910 but the main feature that makes it the largest one in the world was not found until the year 2000. And in 1913, Ambrose Bears did set out on a tour of Civil War battlefields. But in El Paso, Texas, he decided it would be more interesting to follow Pancho Villa's army as an observer. We know that he witnessed the Battle of Tierra Blanca and um, did continue with the military to Chihuahua City. The show then adds something that in fact, happened. Jon Hafner explains. While there, he sent his last communication that we know of, which was a letter, and that letter ended with this ominous line. As for me, I leave tomorrow for an unknown destination. After this letter, no more communication is known, and we do not know what happened. Investigations place Ambrose, Ambrose in town, but witnesses do not know what ensued after. But would it be far-fetched that his age may be cut off? He got into the crossfire in a battle or well, any other reason than aliens. Some speculated he committed suicide to avoid the effects of old health. Others speculate that he got himself in front of a firing squad even. After this letter, no more communication is known and we do not know what happened. Investigations place Ambrose, Ambrose in town, but witnesses do not know what ensued after. But would it be far-fetched that his age may be cut off? He got into the crossfire in a battle or 
Well, any other reason than aliens? Some speculated he committed suicide to avoid the effects of old health. Others speculate that he got himself in front of a firing squad even. We do have another letter that war among his last that in which beers say goodbye if you hear of my being stood up against a mexican stone wall and shot to rags please know that i think it is a pretty good way to depart of this life it beats old age disease or falling down the cellar stairs to be a gringo in mexico ah the euthanasia to be genuine, I do not know what happened to Ambrose Pierce. Hopefully, we might learn someday, but as with everything about Ambrose, I think aliens are the least likely explanation for his disappearance. And if it would be, it would be the most boring one. From Pakime, we steer northeast towards Los Angeles and Elizabeth Lake, just west of Lancaster. This lake is almost 2.5 kilometers long and sits on the San Andreas fault line. And most people would not think twice about this lake. But it, it, it is apparently hiding something monstrous under it. The show tells us that the lake's original original name is uh, La Laguna del Diablo, or the Devil's Lake, because the settlers in the area believed that the devil creature or something would rise from it. The name Devil's Lake was noted by the priest Junipero Serra in 1780. It would later switch to La Laguna de Chico Lopez, due to rancher Mr. Lopez owning so much land in the area. The name Elizabeth it has today might stem from Elizabeth Clayton Clark. Her family started a trading post restaurant slash Pony Express by the lake and she was so beloved by the clientele that she, when she died the lake was later renamed. The lake was also served as a point to divide the territories of the tribe Serrano, Tataviam and uh, Kitamenuk. Unfortunately, the languages of these indigenous people have died out. And in my research, I could not find what they call the lake, unfortunately. But the idea that the devil about the devil it came from European settlers in the area not the Native American people we then hear the story about how this creature was hassling the locals rising from the water and stealing the cattle the um, eyes of it shot fire or lightning and it had this tremendous sound and this story comes in a few different variations the folklore likes to connect the rancher Lopez to the monster. The man responsible to getting rid of it in the lore is uh, attributed to uh, Miguel Lenoy. With his no-nonsense attitude, he has to grab his rifle and shot the beast, who, um, of course, was immune to the bullets, but at least it fled. Some stories describe the monster as a dragon, some as a griffin, while others don't really identify the monster. But note that in all of these stories, they are 
talking clearly about a living creature with moving wings. And probably not some sort of steampunk UFO with uh, <laughs> uh, some balloon or flying wings. Uh, I did find an article from 1886 published in Los Angeles Times where they uh, actually printed one version of the story. They start the article by taunting another paper for printing these reports. But the LA Times now have gotten proper proof. And the story they describe might rival Nibelunglied. But uh, it is from a trustworthy man called Peter B. Simpson. The story has been uh, around for some time, even in the article, but it seems as if it's not until after the disprinting Lopez was connected to it. The news article contains most of the elements we hear in the story, and it's written with a bit tongue-in-cheek, so I'm not sure if it's meant to be taken seriously or if it was a fun story for a lazy Sunday afternoon. They are then trying to present the etymology of place name with the name devil in them. We get a quote from Standing Elk, but I feel it's heavily taken out of context. Standing Elk claims that places where mysterious things happen got the word devil associated with them. For example, he brings up the Devil's Lake and the Devil's Tower. And the fact that he brings up the Devil's Tower... I at least consider might be a indication that they have taken this out of context. So if you're not familiar, the Devil's Tower is a boot that among Native American is, well, it's known with different variation of bears lodge, bears peepee, teepee, bear, Something with bears, but it's also known as the Great Grey Horn or Brown Buffalo Horn. And the mountain, this mountain, there's a couple of holy stories associated with it and is today viewed as a sacred site. Why I think Standing Elk is taken out of context here is because the Dakota tribe also have stories associated with the Devil's Tower, or as they would refer to it, the Great Grey Horn. Now there's several different stories, and um, among the bear versions of it, it's um, the most known. I will link some of them on the website if you want to read more, but it doesn't really give much to the story, but I just wanted to highlight this before moving forward. But we have not really talked about the Thunderbird in Native American myth. This is primarily because the show has not really brought it up either. They talk about these peculiar folk legends told by settlers and loosely connect them to indigenous people to sell you the dragon theory. And the dragon theory, if it is flying and spitting thunder or fire it must be a ufo that they are describing with their primitive vocabulary and we see this theory a number of times in the show basically the issue is that there 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 isn't a one thunderbird most of the tribes on the midwestern plains and the northwest coast have their own version of the bird some element match while other 
don't. Its size differs among the tribe and among some it's a sacred force of nature, while among others it's a powerful being but it's not more special than any other animal that you would encounter in the nature. So the show simplifies the tale so much that it's basically a new version with uh, metal birds flying around. As we discussed last week, this is a form of plastic shamanism. They want to sell you the idea that the Native Americans have UFOs in their religion since they are maybe more attuned to nature. And remember to be careful about New Age-like claims about indigenous people since they are very often wrong and uh, often made by white people with no greater insight than uh, your common person down the street, basically. And we've seen this repeatedly in this episode and in a number of previous episodes too. If you give these ancient alien people a myth, they will change it until it fits and um, then you have an alien. That's basically how they operate. And I think we will leave it out there because the show ends on the thunder burn. They just clap their hands, shouting good work, and they head off to something else. And so will we too. Remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the trench. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. You can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you just want to write an email in all caps, you can find my contact info on the website. You will find all the sources resources used to create this podcast on our website. You will also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about the subjects we bring up. And our outro music is by the Swedish talented band called Trallskruv, who will sing us out with their song Tin Fogel Hat. Links to Trallskruv will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Men jag skyddar mig För jag har foliehand Och så säger ni My science friend, my noblest woman friend, now buried in an English grave, and this a memory leaf for her dear sake. Ended our talk, the sum concluding all we know of old or modern learnings, institutions deep, of all geologies, histories, all of astronomy, of evolution, metaphys, all, is that we all or onward, onward, speedingly, slowingly, surely, bettering. Life, life, an endless march, 
an endless army. No halt but is duly over. The world, the race, the soul. In space and time the universes. All bound as is befitting each. All surly going somewhere. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. <laughs>